Section 27 of the Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 2 by James Boswell. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. I paid him short visits both on Friday and Saturday, and seeing his large folio Greek testament before him, beheld him with a reverential awe and would not intrude upon his time. Footnote. On Saturday night, Johnson recorded, I resolved last Easter to read within the year the whole Bible, a very great part of which I had never looked upon. I read the Greek Testament without construing, and this day concluded the Apocalypse. Easter Day, after twelve at night, the day is now begun on which I hope to begin a new course. Hosper afhus plegum as if from the starting place. My hopes are from this time to rise early, to waste less time, to appropriate something to charity. A week later, he recorded, it is a comfort to me that at last in my sixty-third year I have attained to know even thus hastily, confusedly and imperfectly what my Bible contains. I have never yet read the Apocrypha. I have sometimes looked into the Maccabees and read a chapter containing the question, which is the strongest? I think in Esdras. First Esdras, chapter 3, verse 10. Prayers and Meditations, pages 112-118, and a footnote. While he was thus employed to such good purpose and while his friends in their intercourse with him constantly found a vigorous intellect and a lively imagination, it is melancholy to read in his private register, My mind is unsettled, and my memory confused. I have of late turned my thoughts with a very useless earnestness upon past incidents. I have yet got no command over my thoughts. An unpleasing incident is almost certain to hinder my rest. Footnote, Prayers and Meditations, page 3, Boswell, end footnote. What philosophic heroism was it in him to appear with such manly fortitude to the world while he was inwardly so distressed? We may surely believe that the mysterious principle of being made perfect through suffering was to be strongly exemplified in him. Footnote. Perfect through sufferings, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, end of footnote. On Sunday, April the 19th, being Easter Day, General Paoli and I paid him a visit before dinner. We talked of the notion that blind persons can distinguish colours by the touch. Johnson said that Professor Sanderson mentions his having attempted to do it, but that he found he was aiming at an impossibility. Footnote. I was always so incapable of learning mathematics, wrote Horace Walpole letters, that I could not even get by heart the multiplication table, as blind Professor Sanderson honestly told me above three score years ago when I went to his lectures at Cambridge. After the first fortnight, he said to me, Young man, it will be cheating you to take your money. 
for you never can learn what I am trying to teach you. I was exceedingly mortified and cried, for being a Prime Minister's son, I had firmly believed all the flattery with which I had been assured that my parts were capable of anything. End footnote. Professor Sanderson mentions his having attempted to do it, but that he found he was aiming at an impossibility. That, to be sure, a difference in the surface makes the difference of colours, but that difference is so fine that it is not sensible to the touch. The general mentioned jugglers and fraudulent gamesters who could know cards by the touch. Dr. Johnson said, the cards used by such persons must be less polished than ours commonly are. We talked of sounds. The general said there was no beauty in a simple sound, but only in an harmonious composition of sounds. I presume to differ from this opinion, and mentioned the soft and sweet sound of a fine woman's voice. Johnson. No, sir, if a serpent or a toad uttered it, you would think it ugly. Boswell. So you would think, sir, were a beautiful tune to be uttered by one of those animals. Johnson. No, sir, it would be admired. We have seen fine fiddlers whom we liked as little as toads laughing. Talking on the subject of taste in the arts, he said that difference of taste was in truth difference of skill. Footnote. Reynolds said, out of the great number of critics in this metropolis who all pretend to knowledge in pictures, the greater part must be mere pretenders only. Taste does not come by chance. It is a long and laborious task to acquire it. Northcote's Reynolds, end of footnote. Boswell. But, sir, is there not a quality called taste which consists merely in perception or in liking? Footnote. Jemmy Boswell wrote John Scott, afterwards Lord Eldon, called upon me desiring to know what would be my definition of taste. I told him I must decline defining it because I knew he would publish it. He continued his importunities in frequent calls and in one complained much that I would not give him it as he had that morning got Henry Dundas's, A. Macdonald's and J. Anstruther's definitions. Well then, I said, also, we must have an end of this. Taste, according to my definition, is the judgment which Dundas, MacDonald, Anstruther and you manifested when you determined to quit Scotland and to come into the South. You may publish this, if you please. Twisses Eldon, see post April the 10th, 1778, note for Lord Eldon, and a footnote. For instance, we find people differ much as to what is the best style of English composition. Some think Swift's the best, others prefer a fuller and grander way of writing. Johnson. So you must first define what you mean by style, before you can judge who has a good taste in style and who has a bad. 
the two classes of persons whom you have mentioned don't differ as to good and bad they both agree that swift has a good neat style but one loves a neat style another loves a style of more splendour johnson works volume eight page two two o says that swift's delight was in simplicity that he has in his works no metaphor as has been said is not true but his few metaphors seem to be received rather by necessity than choice he studied purity his style was well suited to his thoughts he pays no court to the passions he excites neither surprise nor admiration he always understands himself and his reader always understands him the peruser of swift wants little previous knowledge it will be sufficient that he is acquainted with common words and common things in square brackets his style instructs but it does not persuade hume describes swift's style as one which he can approve but surely can never admire it has no harmony no eloquence no ornament and not much correctness whatever the english may imagine j h burton's hume in a footnote in like manner one loves a plain coat another loves a laced coat but neither will deny that each is good in its kind while i remained in london this spring i was with him at several other times both by himself and in company i dined with him one day at the crown and anchor tavern in the strand with lord ellibank mr langton and dr van Sittert of oxford without specifying each particular day i have preserved the following memorable things i regretted the reflection in his preface to shakespeare against garrick to whom we cannot but apply the following passage i collated such copies as i could procure and wished for more but have not found the collectors of these rarities very communicative i told him that garrick had complained to me of it and had vindicated himself by assuring me that johnson was made welcome to the full use of his collection and that he left the key of it with a servant with orders to have a fire and every convenience for him i found johnson's notion was that garrick wanted to be courted for them and that on the contrary garrick should have courted him and sent him the plays of his own accord but indeed considering the slovenly and careless manner in which books were treated by johnson it could not be expected that scarce and valuable editions should have been lent to him Footnote. dr wharton wrote on january the twenty second seventeen sixty six garrick is entirely off from johnson and cannot he says forgive him his insinuating that he withheld his old editions which always were open to him nor i suppose his never mentioning him in all his works walls warden beauclerc wrote to lord charlemont in seventeen seventy three 
if you do not come here i will bring all the club over to ireland to live with you and that will drive you here in your own defence johnson shall spoil your books goldsmith pull your flowers and boswell talk to you stay then if you can charlemont's life yet garrick had lent johnson some books for johnson wrote to him on october the tenth seventeen sixty six I return you thanks for the present of the dictionary, and will take care to return you, in square brackets, query your, other books, Gary correspondence. Stevens, who had edited Johnson's Shakespeare, wrote to Garrick, I have taken the liberty to introduce your name, because I found no reason to say that the possessors of the old quartos were not sufficiently communicative. Ibid. Madame D'Arblay describes how Garrick, giving a thundering stamp on some mark on the carpet that struck his eye, not with passion or displeasure, but merely as if from singularity, took off Dr. Johnson's voice in a short dialogue with himself that had passed the preceding week. David, will you lend me your Petrarca? Yes, sir. David, you sigh. So you shall have it, certainly. Accordingly, Mr. Garrick continued, the book, stupendously bound, I sent to him that very evening. But scarcely had he taken it in his hands when, as Boswell tells me, he poured forth a Greek ejaculation and a couplet or two from Horace, and then, in one of those fits of enthusiasm which always seemed to require that he should spread his arms aloft, he suddenly pounces my poor Petrarca over his head upon the floor, and then, standing for several minutes lost in abstraction, he forgot, probably, that he had ever seen it. Dr. Burney's Memoirs, see post under August the 12th, 1784, in the footnote. A gentleman having, to some of the usual arguments for drinking, added this. You know, sir, drinking drives away care and makes us forget whatever is disagreeable. Would you not allow a man to drink for that reason? Johnson. Yes, sir. If he sat next to you. Footnote. The gentleman most likely is Boswell. I suspect that this anecdote belongs to Ante April the 14th, when Johnson was not in the most genial humour. Boswell, while showing that Mrs. Piozzi misrepresented an incident of that evening as a personality, would be afraid of weakening his case by letting it be seen that Johnson on that occasion was very personal. Since writing this, I have noticed that Dr. T. Campbell records in his diary that on April the 1st, 1775, he was dining at Mr. Thrale's with Boswell when many of Johnson's bon mots were retailed. Boswell, arguing in favour of a cheerful glass, adduced the maxim in vino veritas. Well, says Johnson, and what then? unless a man has lived a lie. Boswell then urged that it made a man forget all his cares. 
that to be sure says johnson might be of use if a man sat by such a person as you campbell's account confirms what boswell asserts that mrs piozzi had the anecdote from him End of footnote. I expressed a liking for Mr. Francis Osborne's works, and asked him what he thought of that writer. He answered, A conceited fellow. Were a man to write so now, the boys would throw stones at him. He, however, did not alter my opinion of a favourite author, to whom I was first directed by his being quoted in The Spectator. Footnote number 150 the quotation is from francis osborne's advice to a son swift in the tatler number 230 ranks osborne with some other authors who being men of the court and affecting the phrases then in fashion are often either not to be understood or appear perfectly ridiculous in the footnote and in whom i have found much shrewd and lively sense expressed indeed in a style somewhat quaint which however i do not dislike his book has an air of originality we figure to ourselves an ancient gentleman talking to us when one of his friends endeavoured to maintain that a country gentleman might contrive to pass his life very agreeably sir said he you cannot give me an instance of any man who is permitted to lay out his own time contriving not to have tedious hours this observation however is equally applicable to gentlemen who live in cities and are of no profession he said there is no permanent national character it varies according to circumstances alexander the great swept india now the turks sweep greece a learned gentleman who in the course of conversation wished to inform us of this simple fact that the council upon the circuit at shrewsbury were much bitten by fleas took i suppose seven or eight minutes in relating it circumstantially he in a plenitude of phrase told us that large bales of woollen cloth were lodged in the town hall that by reason of this fleas nestled there in prodigious numbers that the lodgings of the council were near to the town hall and that those little animals moved from place to place with wonderful agility johnson sat in great impatience till the gentleman had finished his tedious narrative and then burst out playfully however it is a pity sir that you have not seen a lion for a flea has taken you such time that a lion must have served you a twelvemonth footnote mrs piozzi to whom i told this anecdote has related it as if the gentleman had given the natural history of the mouse anecdotes page one nine one boswell the gentleman was very likely dr van sittert who has mentioned us before mrs thrale in seventeen seventy three wrote to johnson of the man that saw the mouse 
Piozzi letters. From Johnson's answer, Ibid, it seems that she meant Van Sittart. Mr. Croker says, This proves that Johnson himself sanctioned Mrs. Piozzi's version of the story Mouse versus Flea. Mr. Croker has an odd notion of what constitutes both a proof and sanction. End of footnote. He would not allow Scotland to derive any credit from Lord Mansfield, for he was educated in England. Much, he said, may be made of a Scotchman, if he be caught young. Footnote. Lord Shelburne says that William Murray, in square brackets Lord Mansfield, was sixteen years of age when he came out of Scotland, and spoke such broad Scotch that he stands entered in the university books at Oxford as born at Bath, the vice-chancellor mistaking Bath for Perth. Fitzmaurice's Shelburne, end of footnote. Talking of a modern historian and a modern moralist, he said, There is more thought in the moralist than in the historian. There is but a shallow stream of thought in history. Boswell. But surely, sir, an historian has reflection. Johnson. Ah, yes, sir. And so has a cat when she catches a mouse for her kitten. But she cannot write like asterisks. Neither can asterisks. Footnote. The asterisks seem to show that Beattie and Robertson are meant. This is rendered more probable from the fact that the last paragraph is about Scotchmen. End of footnote. He said, I am very unwilling to read the manuscripts of authors and give them my opinion. If the authors who apply to me have money, I bid them boldly print without a name. If they have written in order to get money, I tell them to go to the booksellers and make the best bargain they can. Boswell. But, sir, if a bookseller should bring you a manuscript to look at? Johnson. Why, sir, I would desire the bookseller to take it away. I mentioned a friend of mine who had resided long in Spain and was unwilling to return to Britain. Johnson. Sir, he is attached to some woman. Boswell. I rather believe, sir, it is the fine climate which keeps him there. Johnson. Yes, sir, how can you talk so? What is climate to happiness? Place me in the heart of Asia. Should I not be exiled? What proportion does climate bear to the complex system of human life? You may advise me to go to live at Bologna to eat sausages. The sausages there are the best in the world. They lose much by being carried. Footnote. Boswell's friend was very likely his brother David, who had long resided in Valencia. In that case, Johnson came round to Boswell's opinion, for he wrote, He will find Scotland but a sorry place after twelve years' residence in a happier climate. Post April the 28th, 1780. End of footnote. End of section 27.